Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we are continuing with The Wretched of the Earth and we're starting a new chapter. This one will be split again, split in three parts, but it'll give mini recaps in future episodes to try and keep the thread as we go. So let's get started on this week's reading. Chapter 3 The Pitfalls of National Consciousness History teaches us clearly that the battle against colonialism does not run straight away along the lines of nationalism. For a very long time, the native devotes his energies to ending certain definite abuses. Forced labor, corporal punishment, inequality of salaries, limitation of political rights, etc. This fight for democracy against the oppression of mankind will slowly leave the confusion of neoliberal universalism to emerge, sometimes laboriously, as a claim to nationhood. It so happens that the unpreparedness of the educated classes, the lack of practical links between them and the mass of the people, their laziness, and, let it be said, their cowardice at the decisive moment of the struggle, will give rise to tragic mishaps. National Consciousness Instead of being the all-embracing crystallization of the innermost hopes of the whole people, instead of being the immediate and most obvious result of the mobilization of the people, will be, in any case, only an empty shell, a crude and fragile travesty of what it might have been. The faults we find in it are quite sufficient explanation of the facility with which, when dealing with young and independent nations, the nation is passed over for the race, and the tribe is preferred to the state. These are the cracks in the edifice which show the process of retrogression that is so harmful and prejudicial to national effort and national unity. We shall see that such retrograde steps, with all the weaknesses and serious dangers that they entail, are the historical result of the incapacity of the national middle class to rationalize popular action. That is to say, their incapacity to see into the reasons for that action. This traditional weakness, which is almost congenital to the national consciousness of underdeveloped countries, is not solely the result of the mutilation of the colonized people by their colonial regime. It is also the result of the intellectual laziness of the national middle class, of its spiritual penury, and of the profoundly cosmopolitan mold that its mind is set in. The national middle class which takes over power at the end of the colonial regime is an underdeveloped middle class. It has practically no economic power, and in any case, it is in no way commensurate with the bourgeoisie of the mother country which it hopes to replace. In its narcissism, the national middle class is easily convinced that it can advantageously replace the middle class of the mother country. But that same independence, which literally drives it into a corner, will give rise within its ranks to catastrophic reactions, and will oblige it to send out frenzied appeals for help to the former mother country. The university and merchant classes, which make up the most enlightened section of the new state, are in fact characterized by the smallness of their number, and their being concentrated in the capital, and the type of activities in which they are engaged, business agriculture, and the liberal professions. 
neither financiers nor industrial magnates are to be found within this national middle class. The national bourgeoisie of underdeveloped countries is not engaged in production, nor in invention, nor building, nor labor. It is completely canalized into activities of the intermediary type. Its innermost vocation seems to be to keep in the running and to be part of the racket. The psychology of the national bourgeoisie is that of the businessman, not that of a captain of industry. And it is only too true that the greed of the settlers and the system of embargoes set up by colonialism have hardly left them any other choice. Under the colonial system, a middle class which accumulates capital is an impossible phenomenon. Now, precisely, it would seem that the historical vocation of an authentic national middle class in an underdeveloped country is to repudiate its own nature insofar as it is bourgeois, that is to say, insofar as it is the tool of capitalism, and to make itself the willing slave of that revolutionary capital, which is the people. In an underdeveloped country, an authentic national middle class ought to consider, as its bounden duty, to betray the calling fate has marked out for it, and to put itself to school with the people. In other words, to put at the people's disposal the intellectual and technical capital that it has snatched when going through the colonial universities. But unhappily, we shall see that very often the national middle class does not follow this heroic, positive, fruitful, and just path. Rather, it disappears with its soul set at peace into the shocking ways, shocking because anti-national, of a traditional bourgeoisie, of a bourgeoisie which is stupidly, contemptibly, cynically bourgeois. The objective of nationalist parties, as from a certain given period, is, we have seen, strictly national. They mobilize the people with slogans of independence, and for the rest, leave it to future events. When such parties are questioned on the economic program of the state that they are clamoring for, or on the nature of the regime which they propose to install, they are incapable of replying. Because, precisely, they are completely ignorant of the economy of their own country. The economy has always developed outside the limits of their knowledge. They have nothing more than an approximate, bookish acquaintance with the actual and potential resources of their country's soil and mineral deposits. And therefore, they can only speak of these resources on a general and abstract plane. After independence, this underdeveloped middle class, reduced in numbers and without capital, which refuses to follow the path of revolution, will fall into deplorable stagnation. It is unable to give free rein to its genius, which formerly it was wont to lament, though rather too glibly was held in check by colonial domination. The precariousness of its resources and the paucity of its managerial class force it back for years into an artisan economy. From its point of view, which is inevitably a very limited one, a national economy is an economy based on what may be called local products. Long speeches will be made about the artisan class. Since the middle classes find it impossible to set up factories that would be more profit-earning, both for themselves and for the country as a whole, they will surround the artisan class with a chauvinistic tenderness in keeping with the new awareness of national dignity and which, moreover, will bring them in quite a lot of money. 
this cult of local products, and this incapability to seek out new systems of management will be equally manifested by the bogging down of the national middle class in the methods of agricultural production which were characteristic of the colonial period. The national economy of the period of independence is not set on a new footing. It is still concerned with the ground nut harvest, with the cocoa crop and the olive yield. In the same way there is no change in the marketing of basic products and not a single industry is set up in the country. We go on sending out raw materials. We go on being Europe's small farmers who specialize in unfinished products. Yet the national middle class constantly demands the nationalization of the economy and of the trading sectors. This is because, from their point of view, nationalization does not mean placing the whole economy at the service of the nation and deciding to satisfy the needs of the nation. For them, nationalization does not mean governing the state with regard to the new social relations whose growth it has been decided to encourage. To them, nationalization quite simply means the transfer into native hands of those unfair advantages, which are a legacy of the colonial period. Since the middle class has neither sufficient material nor intellectual resources, by intellectual resources we mean engineers and technicians, it limits its claims to the taking over of business offices and commercial houses, formerly occupied by the settlers. The national bourgeoisie steps into the shoes of the former European settlement. Doctors, barristers, traders, commercial travelers, general agents and transport agents. It considers that the dignity of the country and its own welfare require that it should occupy all these posts. From now on, it will insist that all the big foreign companies should pass through its hands, whether these companies wish to keep on their connections with the country or to open it up. The national middle class discovers its historic mission, that of intermediary. Seen through its eyes, its mission has nothing to do with transforming the nation. It consists, prosaically, of being the transmission line between the nation and the capitalism, rampant though camouflaged, which today puts on the mask of neo-colonialism. The national bourgeoisie will be quite content with the role of the western bourgeoisie's business agent, and will play its part without any complexes in a most dignified manner. But this same lucrative role, this cheap jack's function, this meanness of outlook and this absence of all ambition, symbolize the incapability of the national middle class to fulfill its historic role of bourgeoisie. Here, the dynamic, pioneer aspect, the characteristics of the inventor and of the discoverer of new worlds, which are found in all national bourgeoisies, are lamentably absent. In the colonial countries, the spirit of indulgence is dominant at the core of the bourgeoisie. And this is because the national bourgeoisie identifies itself with the western bourgeoisie, from whom it has learnt its lessons. It follows the western bourgeoisie along its path of negation and decadence, without ever having emulated it in its first stages of exploration and invention. Stages which are an acquisition of that western bourgeoisie, whatever the circumstances. In its beginnings, the national bourgeoisie of the colonial countries identifies itself with the decadence of the bourgeoisie of the West. We need not think that it is jumping ahead. It is, in fact, beginning at the end. It is already senile before it has come to know the petulance, the fearlessness, 
or the will to succeed of youth. The national bourgeoisie will be greatly helped on its way toward decadence by the western bourgeoisies, who come to it as tourists avid for the exotic, for big game hunting, and for casinos. The national bourgeoisie organizes centers of rest and relaxation and pleasure resorts to meet the wishes of the western bourgeoisie. Such activity is given the name of tourism, and for the occasion will be built up as a national industry. If proof is needed of the eventual transformation of certain elements of the ex-native bourgeoisie into the organizers of parties for their western opposite numbers, it is worthwhile having a look at what has happened in Latin America. The casinos of Havana and of Mexico, the beaches of Rio, the little Brazilian and Mexican girls, the half-breed 13-year-olds, the ports of Acapulco and Copacabana, all these are the stigma of the deprivation of the national middle class. Because it is bereft of ideas, because it lives to itself and cuts itself off from the people, undermined by its hereditary incapacity to think in terms of all the problems of the nation as seen from the point of view of the whole of that nation. The national middle class will have nothing better to do than to take on the role of manager for Western enterprise, and it will in practice set up its country as the brothel of Europe. Once again, we must keep before us the unfortunate example of certain Latin American republics, the banking magnates, the technocrats, and the big businessmen of the United States have only to step onto a plane, and they are wafted into subtropical climes. There for a space of a week or ten days, to luxuriate in the delicious depravities which their reserves hold for them. The behavior of the national landed proprietors is practically identical with that of the middle classes of the towns. The big farmers have, as soon as independence is proclaimed, demanded the nationalization of agricultural production. Through manifold scheming practices, they managed to make a clean sweep of the farms formerly owned by settlers, thus reinforcing their hold on the district. But they do not try to introduce new agricultural methods, nor to farm more intensively, nor to integrate their farming systems into a genuinely national economy. In fact, the landed proprietors will insist that the state should give them a hundred times more facilities and privileges than were enjoyed by the foreign settlers in former times. The exploitation of agricultural workers will be intensified and made legitimate. Using two or three slogans, these new colonialists will demand an enormous amount of work from the agricultural laborers, in the name of the national effort, of course. There will be no modernization of agriculture, no planning for development, and no initiative. For initiative throws these people into a panic, since it implies a minimum of risk, and completely upsets the hesitant, prudent, landed bourgeoisie, which gradually slips more and more into the lines laid down by colonialism. In the districts where this is the case, the only efforts made to better things are due to the government. It orders them encourages them, and finances them. The landed bourgeoisie refuses to take the slightest risk, and remains opposed to any venture and to any hazard. It has no intention of building upon sand. It demands solid investments and quick returns. The enormous profits which it pockets, enormous if we take into account the national revenue, are never reinvested. The money in the stocking mentality is dominant in the psychology of these landed proprietors. 
Sometimes, especially in the years immediately following independence, the bourgeoisie does not hesitate to invest in foreign banks the profits that it makes out of its native soil. On the other hand, large sums are spent on display, on cars, country houses, and on all those things which have been justly described by economists as characterizing an underdeveloped bourgeoisie. We have said that the native bourgeoisie, which comes to power, uses its class aggressiveness to corner the positions formerly kept for foreigners. On the morrow of independence, in fact, it violently attacks colonial personalities. Barristers, traders, landed proprietors, doctors, and higher civil servants. It will fight to the bitter end against these people who insult our dignity as a nation. It waves aloft the notion of the nationalization and Africanization of the ruling classes. The fact is that such action will become more and more tinged by racism until the amount of work until the bourgeoisie bluntly puts the problem to the government by saying, we must have these posts. They will not stop their snarling until they have taken over everyone. The working class of the towns, the masses of unemployed, the small artisans and craftsmen, for their part, line up behind this nationalist attitude. But in all justice, let it be said, they only follow in the steps of their bourgeoisie. If the national bourgeoisie goes into competition with the Europeans, the artisans and the craftsmen start a fight against non-national Africans. In the Ivory Coast, the anti-Dahoman and anti-Voltaic troubles are in fact racial riots. The Dahoman and Voltaic peoples, who control the greater part of the petty trade, are, once independence is declared, the object of hostile manifestations on the part of the people of the Ivory Coast. From nationalism we have passed to ultra-nationalism, to chauvinism, and finally to racism. These foreigners are called on to leave, their shops are burned, their street stalls are wrecked, and in fact the government of the Ivory Coast commands them to go, thus giving their national satisfaction. In Senegal, it is the anti-Sudanese demonstrations which called forth these words from Mr. Mamadou Dia. Quote, the truth is that these Senegalese people have only adopted the Mali mystique through attachment to its leaders. Their adhesion to the Mali has no other significance than that of a fresh act of faith in the political policy of the latter. The Senegalese territory was no less real, in fact it was all the more so, in that the presence of the Sudanese in Dakar was too obviously manifested for it to be forgotten. It is this fact which explains that, far from being regretted, the breakup of the Federation has been greeted with relief by the mass of the people, and nowhere was a hand raised to maintain it. End quote. Footnote 1. While certain sections of the Senegalese people jump at the chance which is afforded them by their own leaders to get rid of the Sudanese, who hamper them in commercial matters or in administrative posts, the Congolese, who stood by hardly daring to believe in the mass exodus of the Belgians, decide to bring pressure to bear on the Senegalese who have settled in Leopoldville and Elizabethville and get them to leave. As we see it, the mechanism is identical in the two sets of circumstances. If the Europeans get in the way of intellectuals and business bourgeoisie of the young nation, for the mass of the people in the towns competition is represented principally by Africans of another nation. On the Ivory Coast, these competitors are the Dahomans. In Ghana, they are the Nigerians. In Senegal, they are the Sudanese. 
When the bourgeoisie's demands for a ruling class made up exclusively of Negroes or Arabs do not spring from an authentic movement of nationalization, but merely correspond to an anxiety to place in the bourgeoisie's hands the powers held hitherto by the foreigner. The masses on their level present the same demands. Confining, however, the notion of Negro or Arab within certain territorial limits. Between resounding assertions of the unity of the continent and this behaviour of the masses which has its inspiration in their leaders, many different attitudes may be traced. We observe a permanent seesaw between African unity, which fades quicker and quicker into the mists of oblivion, and a heartbreaking return to chauvinism in its most bitter and detestable form. On the Senegalese side, the leaders who have been the main theoreticians of African unity, and who, several times over, have sacrificed their local political organizations and their personal positions to this idea, are, though in all good faith, undeniably responsible. Their mistake, our mistake, has been, under the pretext of fighting balkanization, not to have taken into consideration the pre-colonial fact of territorialism. Our mistake has been not to have paid enough attention to our analyses of this phenomenon, which is the fruit of colonialism if you like, but also a sociological fact which no theory of unity, be it ever so laudable or attractive, can abolish. We have allowed ourselves to be seduced by a mirage, that of a structure which is the most pleasing to our minds. And, mistaking our ideal for reality, we have believed it enough to condemn territorialism and its natural sequel, micro-nationalism, for us to get the better of them, and to ensure the success of our chimerical undertaking. Footnote 2. And that concludes our reading for this week. We'll continue with this chapter next week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. You can also go to patreon.com slash abnormalmapping to support them and get bonus shows that I vouch for all of them. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.